Okay, let's begin with prayer. Father, we come to give you thanks tonight for your word. We do thank you we can rest on that. We thank you have demonstrated it to us as being accurate and being reliable. And tonight we come to ask you to meet with us in a manifest way, teaching us from your word, assuring us of who you are, drawing us into that wonderful place of faith. Make it so, so that your name is glorified in us. And we just come to commit this night to you so that Jesus Christ will be praised because we've met together. So meet us by the Spirit of God, and we're looking to you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. What in the world is God doing tonight? I mean, what is he doing in this world tonight? Now, you think about that for just a moment. I think the hardest thing to understand to figure out is not what God did in the past or what God's going to do in the future, but what is happening right now. It all becomes a little bit more confusing as you are put in the place where you have to interpret it in terms in with all the noise of life going on around you. That was a question that people in Isaiah's day were concerned about. What is happening? Because like us, they lived in a day of enormous change. It's very one of the first things we do in studying a prophet is to think about who did the prophet speak to in the first place. And so who, who does anybody in the Bible, why did they say or write or do what they wrote or said or did? What, did it, what is the person who's receiving it getting out of this? Why are they bringing it to them? When we think about Isaiah, that's a tough assignment. Because Isaiah ministered for somewhere between 50 and 60 years. It's hard to pin the exact dates. I have been at the Evangelical Institute for almost, well, pushing towards 47 years. But I've been in Greenville coming to this place for over 50 years. During those 50 years, the world has changed greatly. The tensions that I experienced or people around me experienced in 1968 when I arrived at Furman University are completely different. The Vietnam War was still going on. Right? There were, I didn't have a personal computer. Furman University, I worked on a computer, computer science, to run a program on that computer and the computer science. It was as far as from that wall to right here, this wide and this tall. All right. That was and it was the one computer on campus. All right. It's a different world today. And between that time, we have gone through the Iran crisis back in the 1980s. We have gone through the Cold War. We have come to the end of that, that Cold War and the dissolving of the old Soviet Union and the kind of the regrouping of the Soviet Union. And we have been through problems with, with radical Islam. And we've been through all kinds of different things that have happened. So when you say, what happened, you know, who is he speaking to? If I was speaking in 1968, it is different than if I am speaking in 1980. And if I, it's different than 1990, right, as things begin to collapse. It's different than 2000, right after the, the big problem in New York. 
So that when we say what was going on, what was who's Isaiah speaking to, we have to take a little bit of time with that. So I want to get to Isaiah too. We will. Next week, come and we will, I promise you, we will be actually reading from the book of Isaiah. But what difference does it make if we don't fully understand what's happening here? Because the God that we serve is a God that reveals Himself different ways. All right, let me just note this. There are two basic ways that God reveals Himself to us. We can't touch Him, we can't feel Him, we can't hear Him. We are dead to Him, that is, as a human race, we are dead to Him. We have lost touch. How does He communicate? The first way He tells us, lets us know that He is there, is in nature. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, but from the, from the biggest things to the smallest things, God is showing His handiwork. The, the reason He made it the way it is, all those stars out there, the reason that He put all the different things on this earth that He put on this earth is to impress us with His own greatness, to alert us that He's there. It is amazing to me. That the more men study what's out there and the more they know about it, the more impressed they get with themselves. How can you be impressed with yourself? Anyway, we're not going to go there because that will take us way off the beam. All right, that's the first way. Creation. But there is a second way, and that's through His Word, through His revelation. But when we look at that revelation, we find out that the revelation of God, as recorded in the Word of God, comes to us in a historical context. It's a story. It is one of the reasons when I was in the place, is this the, really the Word of God? And asking that question, this is one that really hit me. As you think about the fact that you say, well, it, anybody could claim that you're writing things that are from God. That's true. Anybody can claim it. All right, But very few people have claimed it. There are very few writings on the face of this earth. If, if modern civilization, if you want to put it that way, goes back 5,000 years, that's about when, when they started, you know, this is when we, we collect writings from people. How many writings do we have that claim that they are divine revelation? You don't have many to check, I'll just tell you that. There are a lot of philosophers out there books of Revelation. Now, if you sort through all that, you find out that um, take something like the Koran. And again, I'm not here to download the Koran. All I'm saying is this is the difference between the Bible and the Koran, and it's a big difference. The Koran was written by one man. One man who received a revelation, and he, or somehow he wrote that. I'm not going to go into all that. When you come to the Bible, you've got multiple authors over 1,500 years. And there are multiple opportunities for you to check and see whether God is really there. And so God reveals Himself, not just by giving philosophy or speaking to men in some kind of dreams and out here, but by speaking and relating what's going to happen and then Letting that take place, because we saw last week, uh, and that's why that was such an important start. God has a plan. The God that is in the Bible is a God with a plan. History has a purpose. We're not, history isn't just going on. It's just not going to continue on and on and on and on. And re- Christianity is a religion to help 
men, as it goes on, get through it. The Christian religion, the teaching of the Bible is that it was, this place came into existence by a dramatic creation. A definite and dramatic creation. That there is a plan that God had when He created. You don't create things for nothing. He created it with a purpose. And that purpose is moving to a definite end. And in between there, He has created men that belong to Him and are called by Him to join Him and to know Him. And the story of the Bible is that with that opportunity out there, some will and some won't. And at the end, there will be a judgment as to whether you joined him or didn't. Because you didn't belong to yourself back there. That's one of the important things from last week. You don't belong to yourself. You were created by him and for him. And if you go along with his program, and if you... Uh, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but how you do that. But if by faith you join him in this, at the end, he blesses. If you refuse to be part of what he plan for you, if you refuse your part in the program which he has, you're judged for that. That's why we have Bible teaching. It's to tell us what to do to prepare for that. Right? Because that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones, the end of his life, Mr. Carroll thought a great deal of Martin Lloyd-Jones. At the end of his life, he People ask him, what should we preach? And he says, I'll tell you, there's only one thing to preach. Don't worry. They were asking about certain things. Don't worry about that. There's one thing to preach to men. Flee from the wrath to come. There's a beginning and there's an end. Make sure you're ready for that end. That's what you need to do. That's what to preach to people because it's the only thing that really matters in the long run. Now, back to our plan. What is the plan of God? This is what we want to... That's where we were last week, all right? We won't go back over that. We want, to, we want to go on. What is the plan of God? Because we want to know where Isaiah fits in that plan. Now, in that history, this is the way God does it. He meets with real human beings along the way. He blesses them and speaks to them. right? And he will tell them about what's coming ahead and how they ought to live in light of that. This, they will then walk out their life. And again, a lot of the Old Testament is him recording the result of what they did. Now, as he's doing that, he's showing this is the kind of God that I am. Right? But one of the other features which is so important to us as we go to the book of Isaiah is this. He's also telling everybody what's happening out here to let everyone know that there is a plan which is being fulfilled. Let's, let's take a very short, this is, I worked all week trying to figure out how to condense the Old Testament to get to Isaiah tonight. I'm not going to take it two days. So we've got to get to Isaiah tonight. How are we going to condense it? I have to throw out a lot of stories. But from the very beginning, there was a plan. Here's the plan. The plan was the glorification of his, of his name at the other end. All right? God is going to do. What, he's, what his plan was is to show what kind of a God he is, and that's a glorious being. And this creation was made in order for him to be able to show the blessedness and the wonder and the power of who he is and display it. Okay. When men fell, he introduced a plan. Again, this one, I have a little bit of trouble here with the vocabulary I'm just going to put there. Um, I think it started back here, but we'll just say that from the fall on, there was a plan. 
We need to note this about God. The plan was set. The moment that Adam sinned, the plan for the rest of the program was already set. That's the way I understand what Paul says in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, speaking about um, the coming of the Lord, he says this, But when the fullness of the times came, God sent forth His Son at the appropriate moment. There was a point way back here that he established that it would happen. He established where it would happen. He established the way it would happen. This was all, it was fixed from the very first moment of Adam's need. The whole plan to the other end was fixed. Now that's why God can speak in his word about what's out there consistently. And it all starts to fit together, whether it's one man or the other man or someone else speaking. It all comes together. And again, I want to just say as we keep going through this book, the book of Isaiah, that is shouting to us. If there's any doubt in your heart, is it real? Look at the way he reveals this. Let's go back to, he starts the program of this. The first man he puts a light on is a man named Abraham. Abraham was picked out. And I'm going to shorten the story. He gets him to what's now modern Israel. And he says certain things to him. I'm going to put it there again. We'll just, he said this several times. He said, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to give you the property you're standing on. That's quite a promise to a man. Imagine If you went outside, stood on the, again, because somebody else owned that property at the time. It wasn't like it was, it was available. You could buy it up, you know. People were living there. Imagine if you walked outside behind this place and God says to you, and he's not going to do this, but if he said to you, (laughs) I'm going to make you and your family into a nation that's going to bless the whole earth. And the state of South Carolina is going to be your property, your family forever. You're right. But he said that. Why does he say that? Because the plan is established. It's real important to get... Isaiah looks at this this way. The plan is established. And he can tell him what he's going to do with him. You see, he's chosen. God has a purpose for him. And that is that purpose that's through him. The whole earth should be blessed one day. A little later on in his life, when it didn't look like any of this was going to come to pass, Abraham asked that question. God, what are you doing? You said, and it's not coming to pass. And you remember at that particular juncture in history, he gives him a covenant, but he tells him a couple things. Number one, this land is yours. Take a look at it. It's all yours. Look at the stars. Go out there and look at the stars. I'm going to make your, your family like they Still just Abraham and Sarah is all that there's in this program. But then he, as he makes a covenant with that man, as he establishes a promise to that man, he does something else. He says, a time's going to come when your descendants are going to leave this and are going to spend time in Egypt. They're going to go down there. And they will be there for a prolonged period of time. And when that's done, I will come and get them. Why does he tell us that? Why did he tell Abraham that? 
because he wants to assure the entirety of the human race that he is there, there is a plan, and he knows what's going on. And he tells them way out ahead what is happening. Fast forward, because we have to go quickly to, to the book of Isaiah. We get to the man Moses. Now, Moses apparently knew something about what God had said to Abraham. But after he made a false start on trying to help the people of Israel, he ends up out in the wilderness. And God comes and speaks to him out there, and he says what to him? He says, I want you to go, and I'm going to take you. I have remembered. I've remembered. Because he knew all along what he was going to do for that group of people. And I'm going to send you to Egypt. And I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And you're going to tell Pharaoh to let him go. And they're going to leave. There's a big deal. What is the chances? What are the chances of a man going to the most powerful leader in the region? Well, I don't know the world, but the region anyway, who has no interest whatsoever. There's no reason for him to let the people. They're there as a valuable asset. They are slaves and they're doing a, a bang up job for him and they have no reason to, to get rid of him. Why would he listen to him? Why would he listen to him? Because God has a plan, and he's going to fulfill his plan. And he's not afraid to tell you what comes next. He didn't say, go down there and see how it works out. He didn't say, go and and see if we can't come up with a plan to to sneak those guys out of. No, you go, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to take them out. Right? I'm just reminding you how the story goes. Then when Moses gets out there, what does he do? He tells Pharaoh, if you won't let him go, this is what's going to happen. And it starts off with the with the see uh, the uh, red excuse me the Nile River excuse me got the wrong thing the Nile River it's going to turn to blood tomorrow on my command. That's a brave thing to say. I've never been able to do anything like that. Why can he say that? Because this is the way God is revealing Himself. He's letting people know because the message he has is so important. You have, he has to get your attention and we can't feel him. We cannot touch him. We cannot reach out and grab him. He has to come and communicate. And one of the ways he's communicating to us that he is there is by showing that I know what's coming next is real important principle in the book of Isaiah. He's going to, he's going to cover it a number of times. Fast forward a couple of years and we're out there at the, he's taking them out. It happened just the way he, he said it would happen. See, these are all prophecies. They were short order prophecies. They were there when he stood at the Red Sea and said, stand still, be calm. It's all going to be okay. Yeah, right. And then the sea opens up. Okay? It was okay because what we say because God moved and because God Abraham doesn't know, because God had a plan. And he's moving along his plan. Now, when Moses gets down to uh, a place called Mount Sinai, and he has the giving of the law. He made another covenant, but the covenant that he made at Mount Sinai is a little bit different. Because at Mount Sinai, he says this, I have picked you out as a nation to be mine, okay? You are going to glorify me. This is your calling, to glorify God. Now, how you glorify God is up to you. If you love me and trust me, I will bless you in such a way that everybody will know what kind of a God I am. Right? If you refuse, this is Deuteronomy chapter 29, if you refuse 
to go along with my plan and you don't want to do it that way, you will still glorify my name. But you will glorify me by letting me show people what happens to those who don't want to do what God created them to do. Right? Now, how do we know that's going to come to pass? Well, that's what happens. That's the unfolding. You go from that point on, as you move through the Old Testament, until you get to a place called Babylonian captivity. It was way down the line. It's the story of how the people responded to God and what he did with respect to that. Okay? Now, I'm going to fast forward another 300 years ahead. Finally, that group of people became a kingdom. And a man named David became king. Okay, I'm I'm passing a whole lot by, but we get to David. He's king. And God made a covenant with him. And in that covenant, he said, your your descendants are going to be on the throne forever. And you're going to continue to have descendants on the throne. And it doesn't, it it won't matter so much whether or not they follow God. I'm going to do this for you because that's the way the covenant worked. And, and, And through you, finally, it doesn't say that direction, but the Messiah will come. It's going to come through David. He's going to have that privilege. Now that takes us, starts to get us closer to Isaiah. Because the kingdom that comes out of there then begins to move forward. And they all those things that have been said begin to come to pass. They are multiplied. They become a great nation. Abraham, the promise there was fulfilled. They have a chance to either choose to do God's will or not do God's will. And that comes to pass. And everything that God said comes to pass. When they step aside, he deals with them. But he's a very patient God. Eventually, that one nation breaks into two parts. Right, this is, and they break into two, play, two parts. One goes downhill faster, but the other also goes downhill. Isaiah is concerned with the second group, the group that went downhill slower. They are the ones who have David's descendants as king. And for 200 years, despite all kinds of problems in the area, more than 200 years, but... For over 200 years, that kingdom was passed down father to son. That's very unusual. There are dynasties which have existed for longer periods of time, but they existed as a family, not as a father to son, father to son succession. I don't know if that makes any sense. But anyway, if you use uncles and aunts and or aunts, but uncles and all the rest out there. You can keep a dynasty going for a long time, but when it comes to father and son, the chances of, a, of them just continuing to have sons and nobody getting in the way, not very high. But it continued. Why did it continue? Because God had a plan back there. And he told, he told David what he would do so that everybody from then on, as they look at that, as we look back at that, can say, yes. That's the kind of God there is. All right? That makes sense what's going on. Well, by the time we get to Isaiah, let's think about where Isaiah's place in all this is. And it is a troublesome time. The year is approximately, he, he's between about 740 B.C. You don't need to write this down. I won't give a quiz. Uh, 740 B.C. and about, It's about 60 years after that. It was about 680 or so B.C. That's approximate. That's just rough. He was prophet for a long time. We know he started in the year, his first 
First thing we have recorded is the year that King Uzziah died, but he said he prophesied before that. He goes all the way. He takes us down to the end of Hezekiah's reign, but almost all the traditions, uh, all the records, they're extra biblical, but they still indicate that he died during the time of Manasseh as king, all right, the son of Hezekiah. During that time, the world was in turmoil. That is, the regional world was in turmoil because there was a change in world history taking place. Prior to this time, in the region, it was regional politics. It was Israel and Judah and Syria and Phoenicia. These are just names around there. And Edom and, and all... Again, I don't know who I've said and who I haven't. But anyway, we got them all in there. But you see, the whole kingdom... Now again, the whole kingdom, the practical kingdom of Judah isn't a lot bigger than Greenville County. All right? The, the northern kingdom isn't a lot bigger than Spartanburg County. It's relatively small. The entirety of Israel, the entirety of the, the region will fit between Greenville and the other side of Columbia. It's not massive. And it, there was a lot of warfare, but it was between these local powers. And Judah had, had made their way there, and they'd kind of gotten used to this kind of infighting. And they, they Just prior to Isaiah's arrival on the scene, a group of guys from what's modern-day Iraq decided that they were going to make a bigger empire. And they started moving out of the Mesopotamian area, which is the... Where, again, where Iran, Iraq, or where Iraq is, not where Iran is, but where Iraq is. And they came over there and started making havoc. Very mean people. Just before Isaiah started, they came in and completely devastated Syria, which is located exactly where Syria is today. It's not nearly as, it wasn't nearly as big as Syria is today, but right there where Damascus is. And they ruined it. Now, when they ruined that, they are only as far away as Colombia. And I mean, they murdered people. It was slaughter. It was brutal. That upsets your world. These petty conflicts where we go out and we beat you up and we move in, we, we gain a little bit of territory and you gain a little bit of territory and we, we swap up. This is all over now. Now we've got guys coming in who want our heads on posts and are out to get us. That's just before Isaiah starts. During Isaiah's time, that will happen to the northern kingdom, which is not any further away than Spartanburg. Jerusalem to, to the capital of, of Samaria went any further away than Spartanburg, the city. You can imagine having hateful people out there. Again, they've got to walk over here, but they can walk here in a day and a half. See, this is a troubled time. What are you going to do about those guys? How are we going to handle this situation? And, big question... What is God doing? How is God involved in this? What about the promises before? And this is where Isaiah steps into the scene. All right, now, that's the date. That's the situation. Um, but it does change over the time because of the what's happening in Israel. Now, the book of Isaiah is divided into three big sections. All right? The first section of Isaiah goes, again, there's, the book divides in, section, in a sense up to, to 
chapter 39. But the first section has to do with the time, the early time in Isaiah's life when Hezekiah basically was king. It's Ahaz and Hezekiah. It's way back at the very beginning of his ministry. Something is happening in the nation, but the nation doesn't know it. And this is also, it's important in a lesson here. You see, as they're looking in the confusion of what's going on out there, they do not know that something is happening in heaven, if you would. A decision made. And this, this idea that God has definite steps along the way of this plan is very important. God's been very patient with the nation of Israel. They've, they've been, they've been, he's, he's put up with a lot and hasn't been too rough. But they don't know that when Isaiah is preaching to them, that they are at the end of their opportunity. It's come to a place where God, in a sense, is saying, I'm going to give you one more big chance to turn to me as a nation to save the nation. Now, nobody would have sensed that. Nobody would have felt that. But it's what was happening. Now, that's important to me because we sometimes get the the impression that I can come to God and deal with God whenever I want to, however I want to. And I want to say this, if you're ready to repent, it's time to do it. And by all means, do it. Don't use what you've done in the past as an excuse for not repenting right now. But God has his opportunities. He gives his chances. And when he closes the door, he closes the door. There was a day when he closed the door on the ark. There was a day in the wilderness when he said, you can't go in the land. And he closed the door on that. And you can go right down through the line. You have days of opportunity and days of uh, days when he closes it off. This was a day of opportunity. God was going to send prophets, and he was going to stir up a man named Hezekiah, who, re- who was going to become king, who really loved God. And Hezekiah would demand that the people follow godliness. In other words, he was going to go straighten it out. He's going to. It was a. He was in control of the religious world, so he could order them, in a sense, to follow God. Isaiah would preach to them, so would Micah, so would other prophets. They will preach. Hezekiah will lead, and they will have an opportunity to choose. Many of them did choose to follow God. Some of them didn't. The early part of the book of Isaiah is devoted to how God spoke over those years to Ahaz and then to Hezekiah. And down the line. Okay. At the end of the book, we have a, a different problem. We don't know when the last part of the book of Isaiah was written. We don't have the exact... I mean, it, he doesn't give a... This part was written during. He doesn't give any reference to a king. It's just written. And uh, so I want to... We're, we're going to be talking a little bit about the... Um, the audience that he was speaking to. At the beginning of the book, he's speaking to those people that we just described. At the end of the book, who is he speaking to? Okay, who is he speaking to? This I don't know. I'm going to make speculation. You don't have to listen. You don't, you know, you don't have to write this one down. But God always is speaking in the present. He doesn't give messages for tomorrow. He gives messages to people today. When you open the Bible, God is speaking to you today. Right? That's what, that's why you have a Bible. You open it up, it's the Word of God, and that is God coming to you today. 
He's not just telling you something will be important for somebody else some other time. That's why when we interpret the Word of God, we go back and say, what did the writer say to the people he was talking to? What was their condition? I can begin to understand what he's saying to me if I understand what's going on with them. Where does he fit here? I believe the the book, that last section, it's the section we're going to be going over, was written by Isaiah in his late years. Because of the way the history is stuck in between there, it seems that he's pushing it to the later part. See, Isaiah, apparently, every, every record or every tradition indicates that he died during Manasseh's reign. There are different ways that it's described, but that that's when he died. When Manasseh became king after Hezekiah, Hezekiah did everything he could to lead the nation in righteousness. When Manasseh took, took over, he was almost the, the direct opposite of his father. His father did everything he could to bring it to godliness. Manasseh does everything he can to bring it to ungodliness. He brings in occultism. He brings in child sacrifice. He brings in, he brings in everything. I'm not going to go over all the things he brings, but everything shifted. All the things that Hezekiah had done to purify the nation and get them ready to serve God with all their heart, he turns around and goes the other direction. Now, the Bible tells us that it was because of the sin, that sin of Manasseh, that God determined he would judge the nation. From that point on, the nation can't be saved as a nation. Individuals can still come to God, and God always receives. But the course of the nation was set. It was headed towards judgment because of the sin of Manasseh. Okay, now that's... Isaiah comes in after that, and he speaks. And it would be very much like our own nation's situation. A lot of things are happening in this nation. And we could say, the people of the United States now do this and this and this. But we're also people of the United States. Right? We are also in this. And just because the tide of the nation is going a particular direction does not mean that there aren't in that same group those who are going to look at it and say, my heart is grieved about this. It's going to come to a, a tough place. And that's, you remember in the book of Ezekiel, in the, in the, there's a judgment that takes place. And God says, go out. Here's, here's the terrible things that are happening in the nation. Now, it's a, it's a vision. And he sends a man out and he says, now mark every person out there who grieves because this is happening. And he doesn't find anybody. Mark everybody. But I believe in that day, there must have been those who followed Hezekiah and who were grieved in their heart. What is God doing today? Why is this going this direction? And I believe the first part, the first reason this message was written was not for the people who were going to understand it later on in the captivity, but it was to assure the hearts of the people who really loved God that God has a plan. And it's moving towards a goal. And that goal has to do with a Messiah. We call this the Messianic poem because it, the center of it is all about the one who will come to make a deliverance finally. This is a word of assurance to those people who are facing a world which they, they don't like and can't change. They can't. They can be irritated with it, but they can't alter its situation. And so that's where he goes first. 
That's where Isaiah fits. Now, let me just go on as long as we're on that part to say this, that the book also had a, an application way out. As he would speak to those people and say, I, I think it's, think about that in that place where if you're frustrated with the way things are, comfort, comfort my people. That's where it starts, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to her. Because even in judgment, wrath, remember mercy, this is part of his mercy. All right. Now, when we get to the people who we think, you know, it really it applies, the place where it really applies, we move forward a hundred years after Isaiah dies. Between Isaiah's death and the actual experience of the Babylonian captivity, which it seems that he's speaking about here, there are a hundred years. Between the beginning, that's between the beginning and Isaiah's death, between the beginning or Isaiah's death and the point at which this becomes really important, the end of that period, there's 150 years. Now, why did God do that? Why did God do that? Because he wanted you and wanted me to know that he has a plan. And his plan is going to go to a deliverer. He has foreordained. This is his purpose from way back here. And nothing that men do is going to thwart the plan of God. He purposed it. He is going to bring it to pass. He is going to do it himself because he can't depend on men. It was their role to depend on him. I want to say finally, we've gone to this on the back side. Who is it? It speaks to it. Of course, it speaks to us too. Speaks to us. That that book was also, I say it was also writing to us. Peter tells us that in the first chapter of of First Peter. He says, This is the men of old who made these prophecies. This is this is a, a, a paraphrase of it. But they it says that they they studied their own writings, trying to find out what person or what time the Spirit of God within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings in, of Christ and the glories that were to follow. But then it says this, but they didn't, they realized that they weren't serving themselves, but you. They were serving you in these things. By giving these messages way back here, they are serving us. They're serving us by helping us to understand who the Messiah is, but by shouting to us that the God who is back here in 720, say, say around 680, already knew what was going to take place at the cross, and he can describe it to us in detail. That the God of, in 680, he already knows how he is going to bring these people out of that captivity, and he can tell it to you in detail. Now, in order to understand this message, in order to figure out what Isaiah is doing, he has to have resources, and that was the second point. I'm kind of doing this differently than I've got on my list here. But anyway, second thing is about what is his resources? How did he come to this conclusion? Well, first of all, he's got the Word of God, all right? He's got the Word of God. That's his resource. That's how he knows. What parts did he have? This is important because it will come out as we look at the passages. First thing we know that he had was a copy of the Pentateuch because he makes repeated references to the stories of the Pentateuch. Those stories are primarily about Abraham and about the Exodus. Those two stories become extremely important to him. All right, that's one thing he has. 
Isaiah also had some of the Psalms, not the entire book of Psalms. He didn't have it. A lot of them are going to be written later. But he had a lot of the Psalms. We know that some of those had been already put together. He makes quotes at times that sound like he has been reading in his quiet time in the Psalms. So it, it, he obviously had access to that material. He also had access to other prophets. I don't have that listed here, but he had access to other prophets. Micah is also preaching at the same time. And Micah and Isaiah have one passage which is identical in both of them. All right, They both say the same thing. But it's neither Isaiah's language nor Micah's language. It doesn't sound like either one of them, which makes us think that he's actually, there's some third prophet that they're quoting who is also bringing the word of God. Not every prophet was a writing prophet. Then we have also have a historic record. All right, he has the historic record. Isaiah was actually one of the men, it seems, that put together or worked on the writing of the book of Kings. Four of those middle chapters in the book of Isaiah are direct quotes from the book of Kings, or the book of Kings directly quotes them, one or the other. Isaiah worked in the court. He was friend of the king, and it seemed that he was, the, he was a chronicler there. So he has those histories. He knows what's going on. But he also has direct revelation. I want to mention that because this, this creates a problem for some people. Direct revelation. God spoke to him. Now, sometimes it says that, and God said to me this, but we don't know how that revelation came to him. So we, just in case you want to ask that question, I don't know. So just you know, make the disclaimer right now. Because he doesn't say how it came. But let's just say certain things that it didn't have, which should help us as we interpret. God did not give him films of the New Testament to watch. All right? Does that make sense? Sometimes people think, well... This is what he said in Isaiah 53. Didn't, couldn't, he, couldn't he just see him on the cross? No, I don't think he did. Well, that's what Peter says. He says these men, they, they said these things. Somehow it was given to them. They wrote it down and they were, they were in, incredibly inquisitive about what they had said. What, what's he saying to me? Because they don't see the, they don't have a copy of the, the book of Matthew or the New Testament books. What they have is a revelation that's given here. And that's why it doesn't always come across as being, you know, a continuous New Testament expression of the way things are. Sometimes the order of things is all mixed up. Sometimes they go circular around it because the man is just receiving revelation and he is relating what he's receiving. Now, what is the book itself? It is a combination of what went into Isaiah, a combination of his study of the Pentateuch, of what God had already said, the study of the Psalms, which is the most prolific place for prophecy. More prophecy comes from the book of Psalms than from the prophets. He has, he has studied the history, he has listened to what God said and he has watched it happen. He has read the records. He has come into this experience with God and then combined that with a direct revelation that God's going to give to him and he's going to take a message to the people who are right in front of him. How far did he understand the day in which he was living? I don't know. He was the deliverer of the message. 
How much does he explain where they are in history? Because that's where a lot of people, they'll, they'll come to Christianity. They always want to know, where are we in history? If there's a beginning and an end, where are we? And I can say this on biblical authority. God doesn't care to tell you. Because what's important is not where we are today. It's how should we live today? So Isaiah, although he says all this and makes all these predictions, he's not talking to people about getting putting together a scheme of how it's going to all work out. What he's saying is, this is the way a person ought to live. Because I don't need to fully understand the days I'm living, but I have to understand what God's Word says I should be. I don't know. Before we finish tonight, the program could be over. It's appointed. There is a day. There is an hour. I'm telling you, it's already fixed. That's what Jesus said. The, uh, the Father has fixed the date. It's done. It's finished. That's already established. That could be tonight. That could be in a hundred years. That could be in a thousand years. I don't know that, but it's not important. What is important is, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have a message to proclaim, and we have a way we have to live. We don't choose the, the day we're living in. We don't choose the circumstance. God chose that for us. That's what we saw last week. Our job is to do what? It's to embrace that time and live as he's called us to live. That's why we want to study the book of Isaiah. Because it has a lot to say to us about how to live in a tumultuous time. How to live in a confused time. Where to fix your eyes when we are in a position where... It's difficult to see what is God doing? What is he doing today? I don't know. I will one day, and you will one day. Because one day we'll be at the place where, like, we can look back and say, this is what God was doing with Abraham. This is what he was doing with Israel. This is what he was doing in preparing for the coming of his son. This is why everything led up to that particular event, that terrible event. Can you imagine... Being one of the disciples on the morning that the man you followed for three years is taken and beaten and dragged out to a cross. Would have been a tough moment, right? What is God doing? What is God doing? He's fulfilling the purpose that he established way back here. Because Jesus is going to go to a place that he told Abraham about. And he's going to go through an experience that he told David about. He's going to die on my behalf, the just for the unjust. He's going to bear the sins and heal men just like he spoke to Isaiah. And all that is to scream to men, I am here I know where you are. I know what you need. And I am ready to meet you if you'll trust me. As a point of Isaiah, this is really not very complicated. It's always time to trust the Lord. Salvation is always in the Lord. You always going to... Doesn't matter. What's your problem? I don't care. Doesn't matter. Well, I do care, but it doesn't matter what the problem is. What's the answer? Go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Go to Jehovah. Go to God. Trust Him. That's the call of the book of Isaiah. So it's, it's really quite a simple book. That's what His name means. Salvation is in the Lord. Don't look anywhere else. So Isaiah had a, a quite a, a calling. What was God doing in that day? Don't know. But He was working out His plan. Isaiah probably didn't know. 
And the people didn't know. But what they did need to know was it's time to commit myself to God. Time to trust him in light of what he's already said. Now, next week we're going to start. We will be in Isaiah next week. And we will look at it and begin to see, what did God say to him? How did he shape him? How did he see? Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you. We give you thanks that you have purposed tonight. This world is in your control, under your control. It will end where you tell it to end. We ask you for the grace to hear your word as we consider Isaiah and to respond in faith and know what it is to live peaceably in troubled times. Come trust you for it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.